walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 59. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Have you ever walked around a cathedral all slack-jawed and amazed, trying to take it all in, but realizing you were only just scratching the surface? I feel like I have this experience all the time, and it operates on every level. There's the spiritual on one end, Who the heck is that saint holding his decapitated head in his hands? What the heck is going on there? For the record, that might be St. Hilarion of Espalion, but there's no shortage of headless martyrs. And then on the other, there's the mundane. Whose bones are tucked beneath the stones I'm walking over? And how did they end up in such a privileged position? Cathedrals are Scenes of incredible human drama. The Duomo of Milan is often held up as a particularly drawn-out construction process spanning six centuries, but it was certainly typical for multiple generations of architects and laborers and church leaders and town residents to see that process play out gradually, placing faith that in time the full glory of the structure would be revealed and that perhaps their great-grandchildren could worship there. And even once that construction is completed, the stage has only been set for new acts in the drama. How often have you wanted to move the furniture around in your living room or update the decor, maybe moving it back again afterward? Imagine having a cathedral as your backdrop. Artistic styles shift, economic fortunes rise and fall, Plagues wipe out half the population, and new doctrinal decisions are passed down from up high. And in the midst of that, the normal routines of living, of life, unfold. The smaller-scale stories of ordinary people who make their own impact, and sometimes quite lasting. So much of that drama feels invisible to me in Spain as a double outsider, neither Catholic nor Spanish. It's exactly for that reason that I was fired up when I read about Anne Bourne's book, If You Stand Here, A Pilgrim's Tour of the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. This was one of those situations where it's exactly the kind of book that I wanted to exist, but I didn't realize it until it did exist. Do you want to know about the history of the Botafumero or the time that the archbishop and queen were attacked by an angry mob in the cathedral or the many other stories hiding in plain sight inside the cathedral? Well, stay tuned, because we'll talk about some of those. And then you can check out her book for the rest. To round out the episode, I've also recorded the introduction to my new book, Pilgrimage, A Medieval Cure for Modern Ills. (laughs) Let me just say, writing this filled me with admiration for Anyone, literally anyone who has ever written a book of any kind. It's freaking hard. And then recording the introduction, which is certainly not long, made me look at audiobook narrators with awe. The pros out there deserve all kind of praise. Anyway, that's the plan. A close look at the untold stories of the Santiago Cathedral with Anne Bourne, 
And then my feeble first steps as an amateur audiobook narrator. Hope you enjoy. Anne Bourne, you might know her by her hashtag, Little Old Lady Walking, is a storyteller and art historian originally hailing from Michigan, USA. She's the author of If You Stand Here, A Pilgrim's Tour of the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, and more recently, Buen Camino, Tips from a Winter Pilgrim, among others. You can find her at tumbleweedpilgrim.com and thebackpackpress.com. Well, Anne Bourne, it is a pleasure to get to talk with you. I have been staring at your name for a long time because when your your book came out, if you stand here about the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, I immediately thought, I really want to talk to her for the podcast. And it's just been a while since I have been recording. So again, thank you for speaking with me. I'm delighted. Let's start with a softball. What do you love about the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela? It houses over a thousand years of Spanish history in that one building. Mm -hmm. If you go into the archives, they have archives from the ninth century. That doesn't happen very often. Frequently, the archives are burned or destroyed or moved or moved and moved and moved again, or somebody can't find them and then they're lost. But in this case, everything is still there. The people that are buried there were, in some cases, were buried there in the 12th and 13th centuries. And the people that come in and out of the building, that interact with the building, leave a, some kind of a trace, I think. I think there's some kind of ghostly stuff that goes on when you enter a, a contained space like that. You know, it goes back to Isabella and Ferdinand. It goes back to the, the monks and the priests and the bishops and the archbishops and the fighting and the arguments with the locals and the crazy pageantry and the different confraternities fighting with each it's a It's just amazing. And it's all in that one building. I'm looking forward to talking with you about some of the stories that you spotlight about the cathedral that you just foreshadowed briefly in those remarks. Before we do, I'm curious, one of the questions that I love to ask particularly art historians, but people who have varied expertise on cathedrals, is how do you go about visiting a cathedral? Like, what's your approach when you arrive at the cathedral? Do you walk around the outside? Do you do you sit down first of all? What's your approach? I've been to a number of great cathedrals in the world, both in North America, in Mexico, I went to the Pope's former cathedral in Argentina in Buenos Aires. I've been to cathedrals in Spain and all over England and France. I try to get right inside. I don't care what the outside is doing. In so many cases, somebody has redecorated the outside. So rarely does the outside interest me, other than the view, the facade, the sort of the way it, it's outlined on, on the skyline. But I get right indoors. And then I try to take the pulse. I, I like to see what other people are doing. And one of the things that I love with the cathedrals and even at the small churches in Spain is to watch what the little old ladies do. Hmm. That's my very favorite. There's a number of rituals that they perform that they do even without thinking. The little old ladies will walk through the holy door and brush their hands on either side with the, an outline of the crosses that are on either side of the door as you enter. 
there's a church in, in Madrid that I just love where they come up and rub the feet of one of the statues and, and go on, where they leave a few coins in, in one of the boxes that's identified specifically for a certain ailment. That fascinates me. So I try to get right in inside. What's your first stop in the cathedral in Santiago? Oh, I visit the widow. Mm. I go to visit the widow. There was a woman who died, they believe, in 1605, who is buried in the chapel that's directly next to the holy door. It's one of the very few painted chapels. It has painted decorations, figural paintings in the arch and on the walls. Mm -hmm. And she's buried there. She paid for the whole chapel to be redecorated. It was previously dedicated to San Pedro. And she, oh, this is such a sweet story. She actually taught herself to write so that she could sign her own contracts. And she contracted Juan Bautista Selma to design her funeral monument in her chapel 25 years before she died. And I was fortunate to be able to visit the archives to actually see that signature. And I just started to cry. <laughs> she was an amazing woman. She left money for, for young women to be married who didn't have enough for a dowry. Wow. It's a great story. And one of those details that I think people would completely miss. You walk right by it. Yeah, they would be clueless to it. It kills me. It kills me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that this partially answers my next question, which there are so many books now on the Camino, on Santiago de Compostela. But as I said, yours jumped out at me when it was released as something that's distinct and interesting and useful and different. What inspired you to write this book? Is it to be able to tell the story of the widow? Well, I learned about her well into the writing of it. Okay. It started in 2014, remarkably. I was volunteering in the pilgrim's office as an amigo. And it was a little program where former or current pilgrims would stand outside the pilgrim's office in Santiago and welcome people. Hi, come on in. Did you have any questions? Yes, you can park your bag over there. Yes, the tourist office is down there. Yes, it's an inexpensive place to eat. Yes, this is when mass is. We gave all kinds of information. But I had lots of free time and I'd spend it in the cathedral. And I'd walk around and walk around and walk. I bought guidebook after guidebook. When I started writing mine, I had four. I had four guidebooks. And each one of them had had a little marker in it where I had stopped reading. I hadn't gotten past page 12 on any of them <laughs> because it was one long Spanish name and a date and another long Spanish name and a date. And I wanted to know the story. I wanted the backstory. I wanted the drama. I figured if people were big enough, important enough, or something enough to be buried in this building, there had to be a story there, like the story of this woman who taught herself to write her name. That to me is huge. That's a big thing for a woman in 1605 or 1585 when she signed the contract. That's amazing to me. So what, what I did, which I didn't, I didn't even remember until I started looking for photographs for my book, I photographed all the chapels because I couldn't stand it that I didn't know who the dead guys were. And I wanted to be able to compile a bunch of photos that somewhere, somehow I'd be able to figure out who were the dead guys. Who are these dead guys? Why are they here? <laughs> Or even in some cases, why are they here instead of, you know, someplace else? Why aren't they buried in the cloister? Who's buried in the cloister? Sadly, I I was fortunate enough to be able to see someone I knew buried in the cloister. The man who signed my very first Compostela in 2010 
died the day before I arrived in Santiago three years later. And I went to his funeral and I saw him buried in the cloister, which was just an extraordinary thing. Wow. But, but, you know, all of these things sort of added up. As far as I can tell, my book is the only current guide to the cathedral that's actually written by a native English speaker. There are lots of translations, which to a native English speaker become clumsy reading after a while. Mm-hmm. There's actually one guide that's written by the museum director of the cathedral. And his whoever is translating for him does a phenomenal job. But it stands out because typically the Spanish into English gets clumsy. It yeah. just doesn't read like conversation. And I'm a storyteller. I'm not I'm not a great novelist or anything. I, I like to tell the stories. Did you think about titling your book, uh, Who Are These Dead Guys? Instead of If You Stand Here? <laughs> no, that's like, you know, <laughs> If You Stand Here, colon, subtitle, Who Are The Dead Guys? Yeah. These are the dead guys. <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, people, when they visit a cathedral, they're motivated by different things. For some, it's an act of, of worship. For others, it's about the aesthetics of it, the the art. And one of the things that, that your book offers as a complement to that is, is kind of the academic historical framework. And I'm wondering, thinking in terms of how you visit cathedrals or how you talk to others, how can these be mutually beneficial things that if you can approach the cathedral from that historical angle, does that benefit it from a religious perspective or from an artistic perspective and vice versa? Well, I'm first and foremost an art historian. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to look for the way the arches are constructed. I tend to look at the ratio of the transept to the nave, I, you know, because I studied medieval architecture at Columbia for years, fortunately. So I always approach it that way. But I, I think that it just knowing something about either the way the place was constructed, why it was built in a certain area, who were the money men behind it? Because there's typically a, a money man, a clergyman, and a designer in each one of these scenarios. Who were these people? Why, you know, what prompted them to put the building here? There's some amazing cathedrals in, in France where they demolished part of the former city Roman wall to build the church because typically you would bury people outside the church and they'd want the church to be close to where people were buried Mm. and people wanted to be buried close to where there was a church. But I'm fascinated that they would demolish a Roman wall, which was the way the town was protected. So now it's gone. And then we have what I call a mighty fortress is our God, where you've supplanted the actual physical barrier that would have kept the bad guys out. And now you've got these turrets and towers where you can see the bad guys coming even better than try to peek over the wall. <laughs> so you mentioned you're a storyteller, and I'm going to ask you to tell a couple stories now that you spotlight in the book. One of the more astounding stories to me, it wasn't the first time I've encountered it in your book. I remember reading about this in, in Richard Fletcher's book, St. James Catapult. Oh. It's a marvelous book. Oh my God, it was my inspiration. When I found out he wrote that book in Edinburgh... I was knocked out. So that's why I figured I could write my book in Michigan. He was my inspiration. He was absolutely my inspiration. I kept lamenting, here it is COVID, here I can't go anywhere. Here I am in Michigan, but I have to write this book. I really want to go to Spain. But then the, you know, the cathedral was under construction, blah, 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 blah. But he was my inspiration. It's a marvelous book. And uh, I I recommend that one too, to everyone. But he, he focuses on 
Archbishop Diego Helmirez, Queen of Raqqa, the day an angry mob turned on them. It's still, it's hard to wrap my mind around. So tell that story for people who haven't heard about it. What happened? 1117. Diego Ramirez is, he's a very savvy guy. In social media, he would, he would have bought Twitter. I mean, he certainly would have bought Twitter. He was famous for pilfering relics to shore up the importance of the town of Santiago de Compostela. Mm -hmm. He was also famous for becoming the very first archbishop. And he campaigned all over the place. This guy traveled. He didn't just hold up in Santiago. He was all over Italy. And he was giving away bits and pieces of the remains of St. James to his buddies in <laughs> Italy, such that in 1879, when the Pope was asked to verify that the remains in Santiago were, in fact, the remains of St. James, he married up the pieces like a puzzle to the pieces mm. that were in Pistoia in, in Italy, <laughs> at the Church in Italy that Elmeris had donated to his friends, right? He was a very savvy guy. The only problem was that he had sort of a tenuous relationship with the town. You have to remember that in those days, the cathedral ran the town. It wasn't like a separate clerical business and a separate government business. It was all the same business. And, mm -hmm. and whoever was archbishop just was, he was a feudal lord. And in many, many, many cases, in fact, in Helmidus's case, he had his own army. And there is one instance of one of the archbishops Lope de Mendoza in mm -hmm. 1400. He was actually severely injured in battle with his army. Hmm. So he would, you know, depending on, on what you needed, you know, you would go to the archbishop and make your, your plea because he was it. He might as well have been king. So he had a tenuous relationship with the queen, obviously, because she was queen and he wasn't king. He was the archbishop. Mm -hmm. So she makes him the guardian of her son, and then she doesn't know whether that was a good idea because <laughs> either he's going to look after him so that he can become king after her, or he's going to take advantage of the son and the relationship with the son to get rid of Araka and make the kid king. And then he'd even be cooler because, you know, he would be the guy that made the kid king. So they, they fight back and forth. She has him arrested. He gets out. They make all of these packs, blah, 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 blah. But one night they're having dinner in his palace, which, by the way, is not the Palacio de Helmiras that was built later. Mm. The building next to the cathedral um, mm -hmm. along the left as you face the cathedral was built a century later. They call it the Palacio de Helmiras, but that's not the actual building. The town people had just had it with him. So they attack him with spears and they throw things through the windows and Helmiras and Uraka flee for their lives. Now, the cathedral is under is under construction. So there's thatch on the roof, which this angry mob sets on fire. But Oraka comes down, she's stripped naked, and they humiliate her. So she makes promises, you know, like, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. They let her go, like fools. And they go after Helmida. So he's up on the roof, he comes down from the roof. He goes into the Corticella Chapel, which was a separate building then. And he, he takes communion, and he has another priest hear his confession before he puts on a hooded robe and escapes across the Plaza de, de la Quintana into Ante Altares and out and to, so he can be with his army. And then he excommunicates everybody. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, who would imagine that such a story is true? But you know, this is the same guy that built a baldacchino over the altar previously to this. Beautiful gold, blah, 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 blah. And wrote on it, 
I, Helmiris, paid X number of reales for this. It had, <laughs> it had the price tag on it still, right? So he was, he was a fascinating guy. And it's interesting because he did not start the building of this cathedral. It was his predecessor who was arrested for citing this drummed up charges against him, saying that he had sided with some invaders in Galicia. And so they got him out of being a bishop and put him in jail. So actually Pelias, his predecessor, is the one who started the building. But, they, you know, they're fun guys. And I think you got to know this, right? Because I can, I can tell you pretty much where he would have run across the building. So you can stand there and imagine him running for his life, but getting his confession heard first. I remember this scene from Fletcher's book of them going through buildings, just like the walls of the buildings that were so thin, they could just sort of break through, go into the next one, break through, go in the next one. Yeah. But there was actually a brilliant doctoral dissertation that I quoted too, because all of this is in, is in the, the Historia Compostellana, the Chronicles. Of course, I have a love-hate relationship with those chronicles, too, because I figure if you're writing my chronicle, I'm going to tell you I had broccoli for lunch. <laughs> and you're going to go, but Anne, you had chocolate cake. No, no, I had broccoli. You saw me eat it, right? You know. So I think that I don't know how actual fact is in there. I'm sure that there is some, but you know what I mean. Yeah, part of me, every time I hear a story that is so fun that I really want to believe it, the, there's the voice in the back of my head that says... Don't look any more closely at that story. No. No. <laughs> Just enjoy it. You touched on a second one that I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, most people, once they've gone through their first Camino guidebook, they know that miraculously the bones of St. James traveled across the seas to Northwest Spain. They were buried. They were rediscovered. Cathedral was built. They know that. They don't know that then the relics were lost <laughs> and lost for centuries. Yeah. And it's hard to believe that that happened. Yeah. So tell us about that story. Well, what I have to think is that they had one guy do it. They had one guy hide the relics. So it's 1589. Sir Francis Drake is threatening to invade Galicia. He's off the coast. They're afraid he's going to come. They're afraid that he's going to steal the, the relics because it's the most valuable thing they have. Now, did Francis Drake have any interest in them? I don't, I don't know. I can't say he didn't because certainly whoever has them has revenue, you know, just on a purely economic basis. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he even thought about it or knew that they were there, but whoever was in the church believed that they were, that they were threatened. Keep in mind that the relics actually have never moved since they were found. They have been within a few feet of each other since they were found. A lot of people think they were found like in Padron or Area Flavia or someplace, you know, in Finisterre. That's why the cathedral is built on a hill. Mm. It would never have been built on a hill if they'd been found in a more, if they had been moved, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So my guess is they probably left it to one guy so that one guy you know, can hide them. And then it's not like they all could be tortured and, you know, they'd have to find the one guy. He hides them so that Sir Francis Drake can't find them. And then nobody finds them until the end of the 19th century, which is kind of interesting. I'm not sure whether there were a succession of people looking for them or whether they just assumed they were there somewhere. Yeah. Because over all of that time, many, 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 many pilgrims would come 
to revere the relics. They just wouldn't see them the way, well, I mean, we can see the casket that they're housed in. So, you know, fast forward to 1879, 1589 to 1879, and the canon Don, Don Lopez Ferraro is the man who, he's, he's a writer, he's a novelist, he's a poet, he's an archaeologist. He's an archivist. He's an amazing guy. He writes his 11-volume history of the cathedral. He takes it upon himself to find them and locates them behind the altar. The staircase, going down to the actual location, you can see from a couple of small vantage points behind the altar. He finds them, they dig them up, and they use what they then refer to as the scientific method, which is to send them to the Pope to be verified by marrying them up with the remains from Pistoia. And do you know what they found in the box? This I find interesting. What did they find? They found the remains of three men and a small piece of mortar that they expect is probably mortar from James's first church in Spain. Where is the mortar now? I believe everything that they found is is in that silver box. Okay. The silver box is new, I think. I don't I don't think that's 1589. I think that's 1879. See, you know, that's the thing. People ask me questions about objects, and I, I can tell you about the people, but I, <laughs> I don't know I don't know everything about the objects. Yeah, of course. I, I just imagine three centuries, the people in charge, not wanting to call attention to the fact that they didn't know where the relics were, but just getting more nervous by the year. I think, you know, they probably took it on faith that somehow, some way they were hidden in the church that they were not stolen, or that would have been a thing, mm-hmm. and they were not removed, or that would have been a thing, that they had to just have been set a little bit not there. Yeah. <laughs> One other story, which is not necessarily a, a single story, but I learned a lot about the Botofumero from your book. It's something that everybody knows about, but I don't know that anybody knows the actual history behind the Botafumero. So so, so tell us about the, the history of this. Well, one of the things that I find interesting is that that pulley mechanism and the swinging of it predate Galileo by centuries. The original swinging of it, they anticipate was probably a guy with, you know, that would swing it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this catwalk thing where they have this cross piece and the, and the thing is suspended from the cross piece. And it was wooden. The first one was was wooden. And I think, it, I think the first one goes back, I'm going to say to when the church was first built. The cupola that we know now was installed by Lope de Mendoza in the 15th century. But I think that the ceiling, certainly, where the cross piece was, swung this thing. And there are many accounts of, you know, a super large incenser that could swing great distance and was very impressive. You know, sort of the popular thing, the popular idea is that because Pilgrim slept in the building that it smelled bad (laughs) and that this was meant to dispel the smells of the pilgrims. I don't think that's really... I mean, it's a cute story, but I don't think that that's actually it so much as they actually believed that incense would dispel germs, like from different diseases that they were trying to not share. There actually is, I mean, even now there is a sense that there's something in in different kinds of incense that will kill germs in the air. 
that was sort of a primitive medicine thing that might have been it. But the other thing is that, you know, the idea that your prayers are lifted to heaven on the smoke is is also quite lovely, I think. How many times has the Boat of Romero broken over the years? What is it, like a half dozen? Yeah. Four <laughs> times. The most famous certainly is, is when Catherine of Aragon is in the is in the church. Yeah. Poor girl. You know, I, I developed <laughs> such a sympathy for her. She really just was a pawn in a weird game that ended badly for so many people because Isabella and Ferdinand wanted her to marry into the English monarchy to unite the English and the Spanish, certainly against the French, but also to unite Catholic kingdoms. Prince Arthur, the, her first husband, when he dies and she waits another eight years to marry Henry, who becomes Henry VIII, we all know what he did with the Catholic Church. So it's ironic that she sacrificed her entire life to this notion that it was going that her marriage was going to unite the two kingdoms in Catholicism. United against the French was a bonus, you know, because Isabella and Ferdinand, mostly Isabella, dispelled the Jews and the Muslims in 1492. And the whole theory, you know, the whole thing was to create this Catholic kingdom that was in both places. From that massive scale down to the smallest of scales. The other little nugget that I took from your book that will stick with me for a long time is the story of the bell ringer's house. Oh my goodness. Which is amazing to me. It's the sweetest story that the last man to manually ring the bells as a job, because every once in a while they will manually ring the bells. They, they did it just the other day for the death of the Pope, of Pope Benedict. They actually manually rang the bells. And frequently, infrequently, they will manually ring the bells. But the last man to have that job actually was able to rig up this sort of pulley system so they did it. he didn't have to get out of bed in the morning to ring the bells. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. But he lived on the roof of the cathedral. Yeah. And his kids played on the roof. And they, he had animals. He was a tailor. He was one of the tira boleros. He pulled the, the botafumero. Those are some career goals right there. Being able to do your job while lying in bed. It's yeah. a good gig. Yeah, I admire that. Um, <laughs> the nice thing is that when they automated the whole system, he was the first person to activate the automated system. The last guy to do it manually, the first guy to do it automated. It's a sweet story. This is the last question I have about the cathedral. And it's not about what's in your book now, but maybe what's going to be in a later edition of the book. Because one of the things that's interesting reading through it is that we can see how the cathedral evolved over time. And so I loved seeing the story about how pilgrims used to just put their hats on the statue of Santiago. It's a great story. But, you know, we, we learn about how the choir was removed over time, multiple choirs. Even just during my brief frame of reference, I've seen the replacement of Santiago's cloak, the original, mm -hmm. um, the closing off of Maestro Mateo's sculpture. Cathedrals, churches, they evolve over time. They change. So I'm just curious, from your perspective, what are the next changes? If you were to look 30 years, 50 years, however much in the future, what's going to look different? Well, you know, so much looks different now from when I first entered the building. 
The very first time I walked in the building, I walked through the Holy Door in 2010 on New Year's Eve. I was one of the very last people in 2010 to walk through the Holy Door. There were confessional boxes. Teodomiro's gravestone was on the right as you walked in the door, and now it's in its own little chapel. Things move around. There, there used to be a metal gate all the way around the altar that you don't see now that closed off the altar uh, before you walked up the stairs to the altar. A lot of it is driven by liturgy. As the liturgy becomes more expansive and more inclusive and more, I guess, personal, things will change. I don't see them removing the pulpits to read everything from the altar. But, you know, that's they, they might do that. I don't know. The key elements of that church really haven't changed for centuries. Some of the sort of interior decoration, we're going to say, some of the Magnolia home things that, you know, well, this over here, and I like the way this lamp looks, don't you think? <laughs> we'll try this color paint. You know, that kind of thing you might see. I don't know. I don't see I don't see them changing a lot. You know, certainly installing benches and chairs is a big thing. So many cathedrals went for centuries without them. This one in particular didn't have chairs. I I don't know when they first introduced chairs. It might have been in the 40s, wow. the 1940s. I don't think there were chairs before that because when Georgiana Goddard King writes about being in the cathedral, she says that everyone is standing on their own square of pavement. That doesn't tell me that everyone is sitting or in a pew or in front of a chair. Right. So I, I really don't know when when the chair when the pews and the chairs were introduced, but I don't think it was that long ago. That's really interesting. Well, let's pivot because you have another book that's come out even more recently, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, last June. Yeah, so Buen Camino Tips from a Winter Pilgrim, because in December 2021, you were walking the Camino at maybe the quietest time when it's been legal to walk the Camino Frances. So after peak COVID, the middle of winter just a tremendously quiet time to be on the Camino Frances. What inspired you to head to the trail at that point? Well, I have walked in the winter several times. My first Compostela was December 2010, December 31st, 2010. I then walked with my children in 2012. We arrived in, in Santiago the beginning of January. I walked with my second daughter a bit in 2014. She and I walked from Roncesvalles to Burgos, and then she walked all the way to Santiago by herself. And then I walked in January of 2020 before we knew what we were about to find out that February and March. Yeah. That was awesome. I do it because I, I like the solitude. I like having the Camino to myself. I'm very selfish. <laughs> When I imagine a winter pilgrimage, I think about weather, of course. Setting that aside, what are some other challenges and also some advantages of walking in December besides solitude? The biggest advantage is that you have a chance to experience a little better, I think, what small town life in Spain is like when it isn't crowded with pilgrims. You see it through a lens of 100 pilgrims in a small town. 
And I like to see it through a lens of one pilgrim in a small town because you talk to the bartender. I mean, I talk to everybody. I talk to the bartender. I'll talk to cab drivers. I talk to the, the women that are waiting to get into church. I wrote about that in the book about this conversation I had with this woman who was waiting to get into light candles. I think it was Navarrete. But I, I love I love that. And my favorite is because most of the, the questions people ask me is, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Why are you walking by yourself? Yeah, why? Why are you walking by yourself? And then, you know, I'm able to express, you know, I, I like to walk by myself. I grew up in Michigan. It, I'm not here for the weather. Nobody goes on a pilgrimage because they think the weather's going to be great. It's like going to the Bahamas thinking the weather's going to be right because it rains in the afternoon and there's nothing you can do about it. It's an island, you know? <laughs> so I don't I don't go for the weather, but I understand winter. I get I get winter because I live in a place in Michigan where we easily get six months of winter every year. I've been in Galicia just once for December, January. It was a late scouting trip to quickly go back through the the Ruta do Mar and the Camino Inglés. I couldn't believe how late the sun rose. Oh my gosh, that's the other thing. You can get to sleep in. You know, I worked in Nahira this past summer as an hospitalera. And these folks are up at 4.30 because they want to get up and walk before the sun comes up. But the sun comes up like a minute later. And in, in December, I get up at 7.30. I get a nice breakfast. I have a second cup of coffee and I take off at 8.30. And the sun is just coming up at 8.30. Just coming up. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, yeah, walking on New Year's morning, and uh, it was one of those classic moments where the pilgrim is walking past all of the, the dappered up people coming out of the nightclub. We're all staring at each other in darkness, wondering about each of our individual life choices. Yeah, I've, I've done that. I've done that. <laughs> I think we were in Parzua, where they were, still, they were still in the bars when we took off in the morning. But I like that. I want to know that. I mm -hmm. want to experience that. I also love a good homemade soup. And you don't appreciate that so much in July as you do in December. You know, there's something really marvelous about stopping in, in a bar that has a fireplace and getting a glass of red wine and just sitting and warming up by the fire. There's, you can't experience anything like that in July. You go out and sit and have a beer on a patio. That's I can do that here. <laughs> you know, there's there's something tremendously magical when when you're the only person in the whole albergue. Yeah. And they look after you because they're they're worried about you. They're, they they want to make sure you're okay. They think you're nuts, but you know, they also want to know that you're okay. <laughs> you will find people who will say, you know, you're not supposed to be walking now. Hmm. And you get the sense that in some regard, in some places, you know, this is a chance for them to take a break, a little, just a little break from pilgrims. And when another yeah. one shows up, it's like, geez, give me a break. I one more damn pilgrim. <laughs> But you know, you're, it is more of a novelty. You're not too much of a burden as a as no, a crowd of no, one or true. two. And you know, my hashtag is little old lady walking. I think you know, I get sympathy. People get it. You know, if there's a little old lady walking, she's she's the real deal. I'm not there for the weather. I'm not there to you know just sit on the patio and have, have a beer. I'm there because something draws me to do it, and I and I I get so much out of it. So what's next for you? What's your next pilgrimage? What's your next book? I think I have to start writing about my family history next. I have gotten sucked into Ancestry.com and I have found <laughs> kind of an interesting confluence of events where 
people in my in my family history have married up to important events in history. And I want to write about how they the people in my family sort of intersected with key moments in history, like the founding of Montreal, the French settlements in, in Montreal, the pilgrims who came from, from England to Massachusetts, my great-great-grandfather who fought for the Union during the Civil War. I have an ancestor who was captured after the Monmouth Rebellion and shipped to Barbados as a slave. He was sold into slavery in Barbados. Wow. So I'm fascinated by the intersection of, of these sort of major historical events and how my family fits in. It's not great art, but it, it's a fun story. You know? Yeah, that's what matters. Yeah. And then back on the, the Camino next winter? Most likely. Yeah, most likely. It's Advent. You know, Advent is atmospheric. It's gray. It's overcast. You know, I get hot chocolate and, you know, I talk to people and, you know, I slip into the church and watch the little old ladies run their act. You know, it's it's brilliant. I will be in Santiago in July for a conference, but um, probably not before then. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Anne, and a pleasure to read your books. And Thank you. Uh, I appreciate all of the work that you put into all of this. Thank you. Pilgrimage, a medieval cure for modern ills, by me, Dave Whitson. Introduction. My first pilgrimage ended in pain. Frankly, it started in pain, too. I suppose, if we're being honest here, that pain was a constant travel companion throughout the journey. Nearly 20 years removed from that first walk on the Camino de Santiago through Spain, the memories remain vivid. Despite being in my early 20s, I was hardly fit. On the first day's climb over the Pyrenees, mere kilometers into the ascent, I collapsed onto a rock as my quads spasmed uncontrollably. Other pilgrims slowed in concern as they walked by. Days later, my knees seized the spotlight, trumpeting their grievances so abrasively that I paused atop a steep descent for minutes, pondering whether it would hurt less to simply roll to the bottom. Moving into the final stages, the discomfort migrated upward to my shoulders, which throbbed when jostled even slightly. Unfortunately, shoulders are rather important when backpacking. Not wanting to endure the agony any more than necessary, I pushed through the final 40 kilometers in a single go, never once removing my backpack until I staggered into my hotel in Santiago de Compostela, collapsing into a bed, not moving for hours aside from the whimpers. As I lay dying, my imminent death, it turns out, was a bit of whiny hyperbole, I had one coherent thought running through my mind. When can I come back and do this again? Flying home to the USA, a second thought took over. How on earth will I explain this to others back home? Heck, I couldn't even fully explain it to myself. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I developed into an insufferable atheist, so a religious pilgrimage seemed like an odd fit. I certainly did not crave highly sociable environments. Even as a young traveler in Europe, my introversion pushed me toward private rooms instead of hostels, 
much to the consternation of my budget. I wasn't much of an outdoorsman either. Even after spending a month on pilgrimage, it was challenging to articulate what drove me to it, let alone what was already pulling me back. Unlike today, few in the USA knew about the Camino de Santiago, so the concept was foreign to everyone in my life. I muddled through the same uncertain terrain in every conversation, over and over, in the weeks following my return. My uneasiness was hardly atypical. While pilgrims certainly look forward to homecomings with loved ones, that excitement is often tempered with the challenge of translating a profound and protean experience into mundane and concrete language. I knew that something exceptional had happened, something that was both discreet and ongoing, something that would fundamentally reshape my life moving forward. While I couldn't appreciate the full magnitude of the impact then, much of my adult life has indeed been permeated by pilgrimage. I lead groups of high school students on walking pilgrimages most summer. I've written guidebooks on branches of the Camino de Santiago for Cicerone Press. And, sporadically, I've produced a podcast on pilgrimage, the Camino Podcast, that has allowed me to connect with pilgrims and other relevant experts around the world. I've walked thousands and thousands of miles on pilgrim roads over these past two decades, towards Santiago de Compostela and Rome, Canterbury and Trondheim, Jerusalem and Kumano Hongutaisha. I've felt the Ganges course through my fingers, watched the faithful bathe in the Haridwar Ghats, and climbed the holy mountains of Utaishan and Olympus. I've stood beneath towering cathedral spires and within silent towering woods, been surrounded by the dead of Ukonoin in Koyasan and the living in the candlelight procession at Lourdes, witnessed the black virgins of Le puy en velay and Rocamador in Chestahova, touched the largest surviving piece of the True Cross in Santo Toribio, sought guidance from the Oracle at Delphi, and watched the sun set at the world's end. For all the awe and wonder generated by these places of natural splendor, human creativity and ingenuity, and shared belief, I've also marveled at my own growing capacity. On the tenth day of that first pilgrimage, for reasons as unclear today as they were at the time, I pushed myself much farther than I'd ever gone before, walking 35 kilometers, around 21 miles, to Via Franca Montes de Oca. I was exhausted, completely spent. I found a room for rent in a truck stop motel, Food options were poor, so I settled for a big bag of Magdalenas, Spanish muffins, from a hole-in-the-wall bakery. I flopped onto the venerable bed in the Spartan room, with the gradually emptying muffin bag perched on my stomach, and proceeded to stare vacantly at the ceiling for the remainder of the afternoon. In that moment, too, I felt awe. Awe at what I had done, what I was doing, and what I would continue to do in the days and weeks ahead. Like a pilgrim to Lourdes that you'll hear from later, I wouldn't claim that this has transformed me into a completely different person. I'm now a tolerant agnostic, generally secular in outlook, still a steadfast introvert. I'm definitely a much stronger walker. Nonetheless, I've never stopped struggling with inquiries from people about why I continue to go on pilgrimage, why I feel this inexplicable certainty about its importance in my life. Instead, I've just become more skilled at evading the question and changing the subject.
I've come to realize that one of the major reasons that it's challenging to pin down the source of my ongoing motivations to participate in pilgrimage is that the experience is multifaceted. If you're seeking treatment for your back, you go to a chiropractor. If you're suffering from tooth pain, you'll head to the dentist after putting it off for as long as possible. The desire to go on pilgrimage, however, speaks to many different needs. Countless pilgrims embark hoping to treat a known symptom, only to find relief for a much deeper underlying condition. We also happen to be living in a moment when pilgrimage speaks to particularly acute deficits and difficulties. We are sedentary shut-ins, increasingly favoring artificial online connectivity over the in-person communities that are far more enriching. Shut off from nature, stripped of clarity of purpose, and constantly distracted. Many of us struggle to find the spark in life that gives it meaning and joy. We are, in short, disconnected. Or sometimes even worse, confoundingly misconnected. In this book, I hope to share how pilgrimage can reconnect us to the physical world, our deeper selves, other people, and spiritual belief, and in so doing, help reforge a link with the sources of so many good things in our lives, like health, joy, inspiration, peace, and meaning. To accomplish this, I've assembled a wealth of perspectives. This book is not a single pilgrim's story. My personal experiences mostly sit on the margins of this narrative. Instead, I synthesize academic research on both the challenges we face and the many discrete elements that constitute pilgrimage, and then weave that together with excerpted anecdotes from many different pilgrims. Most writing on pilgrimage tends to operate solely in the realm of personal memoir or academic study. By bridging that gap, this book strives to use those sources as complementary perspectives, each lending insight to the other. The wisdom of crowds trumps any individual's experience. My goal is for this book to be of service to several distinct audiences. First and foremost, I hope that it speaks to other experienced pilgrims, offering insight and clarity into their lived experience. Even after 20 years of pilgrimage, this research project was still instructive for me in laying bare some of what I had encountered but never fully recognized. Second, I aim for this book to be a resource for friends and family of pilgrims, to help reveal what their loved ones are pursuing and why, and thus set the table for a richer series of conversations upon their return. Finally, I aspire for this book to be a source of inspiration for those who have never gone on pilgrimage, or even considered the notion. Most pilgrims that I know found their way to the practice by accident or coincidence. They stumbled across a television program or movie that offered inspiration, or they happened to drop by a presentation at their outdoor store or church, or one website led to another, and there they were. Once they encountered the idea, though, something clicked. A bell rang that simply couldn't be unrung. For whatever reason, for a million reasons, they immediately recognized that there was something for them here. I think there's something for you here, too. I should pause at this point to address a thorny question. What exactly is a pilgrimage? There is no shortage of possible answers coming from the realm of academia. Here are three. Alan Morinus, 1992, defines pilgrimage as, quote, 
a journey undertaken by a person in quest of a place or a state that he or she believes to embody a valued ideal, end quote. Luigi Tomasi, 2002, meanwhile, characterizes it as a, quote, journey undertaken for religious purposes that culminates in a visit to a place considered to be the site or manifestation of the supernatural, a place where it is easier to obtain divine help, end quote. Finally, Richard Barber, 1993, offers the following, quote, a journey resulting from religious causes externally to a holy site and internally for spiritual purposes and internal understanding, end quote. Some patterns emerge from those three definitions. Pilgrimage is a journey toward something. A spiritual or religious influence is at play, providing the impetus to depart or a sacred destination to strive for, though Morinus's language, quote, a valued ideal, is more flexible. That said, it's hard not to feel unsatisfied by these offerings, given their general vagueness. One of the major challenges that impedes the development of a less mushy definition of pilgrimage is that the act encompasses a wide array of practices. In acknowledgement of that, Morinus also developed a typology of pilgrimage, laying out six different kinds. Devotional pilgrimages, like the Camino de Santiago historically, offer the possibility to encounter the divine and a chance to earn merit. Instrumental pilgrimages, meanwhile, serve very specific worldly goals in the way that pilgrims to Lourdes, France, might pray for a miracle cure for a dire illness. The third category, normative pilgrimages, are annual traditions, often linked to seasonal moments or journeys pegged to specific moments in a person's life, like elderly pilgrims traveling to Benares, India. Obligatory pilgrimages are an obvious fit for the Hajj to Mecca, but this also includes pilgrimages that are assigned as punishment, providing an opportunity for penance. Solitary seekers and Zen pilgrims might pursue a wandering pilgrimage. My first experience on the Via Francigena, getting lost constantly, does not qualify. Finally, Morinus highlights initiatory pilgrimages, rites of passage in which the subject transitions into a new stage of life. Pilgrims are often defined in opposition. Sure, it might be hard to pin down exactly what they are, but we know exactly what they aren't. Tourists. Catch a group of pilgrims on a bad day, and you'll hear all about the sins perpetrated by tourists. Their shallow hedonism, their softness, their inauthenticity. It's fascinating, though, to look more closely at that label, tourist. As Tomasi explains, it arose in 16th century Europe and proliferated over the next two centuries. Whereas travel had previously been arduous and often unpleasant, hence the link between travel and travail, the rise of hotels and other creature comforts took the edge off the experience. More consequentially, it became normalized and intentional. The Grand Tour offered an itinerary that promised education and cultural refinement, visiting Europe's renowned architectural and artistic works. A tourist in that age was simply one who completed that circuit, a physical journey that promised internal growth. 
That returns us to Barber's definition, which stresses the dual journeys within and without, which I find to be the most instructive way of thinking about pilgrimage. It also aligns with the thinking of Victor Turner, the forefather of pilgrimage studies, who famously wrote that, quote, if a tourist is half pilgrim, a pilgrim is half tourist. While my experience is grounded in walking pilgrimages, I have strived to synthesize research and stories from a much wider array of perspectives in this book. You'll encounter more than two dozen different pilgrimages in these pages, with representative examples of five of Morinus's six types. My apologies to the wanderers. These are all described in further detail in the appendix. One of the most striking discoveries that I made as I navigated the available materials on different sacred destinations is how many consistent qualities were made manifest across highly distinct places and contexts. I'm not foolish enough to claim that any of these are universal, cutting across every pilgrimage. But there is sufficient commonality to take note. That said, a significant portion of the book draws from walking pilgrimages, not just the Camino de Santiago, but also the Via Francigena to Rome, the Abraham Path in the Middle East, and the 88 temples of Shikoku, among many others. This is driven in part by the abundance of written accounts that exist from these routes. The growing popularity of walking pilgrimages in recent decades has been accompanied by a proliferation of pilgrim memoirs, and these are often rich sources of insight. It doesn't hurt that walking pilgrimages are often, though not always, longer in duration and therefore provide greater opportunity for personal reflection and transformation. Otherwise, I have mostly, with one glaring exception, adhered to a rather traditional definition of pilgrimage when choosing case studies, focusing primarily on sites associated with the major world religions. You won't find Graceland in these pages, nor Burning Man, nor any of the other secular pilgrimages that have loyal contingents associated with them. This is not a value judgment. Rather, it's an attempt to keep a fairly amorphous subject more closely circumscribed. I suspect, though, that the insights offered in these pages could have broader relevance to those varied contexts. Finally, in assembling academic research for the following pages, I have selected a small set of representative studies that reflect broader trends in the literature. When possible, I spotlight meta-analyses, studies that synthesize a wider array of research and offer more generalizable conclusions. There is always some risk when operating outside of the realm of one's disciplinary expertise. In the effort to avoid misrepresenting important findings or muddling the intent behind precise language, I include a number of direct quotations and also list all selected studies in the endnotes. Many of these topics are emerging fields of study, with fresh research deepening and refining our understanding seemingly every month, so I encourage readers to review recent updates. Despite what the title claims, I recognize that pilgrimage can't fix all of the problems we face today. It can't bring down oppressive regimes, nor can it resolve growing income inequality. It was powerless in the face of the coronavirus and won't be of any help with climate change. It can't eliminate racial bigotry any more than it can feed the hungry. It can, however, provide an opportunity to break away from many of the corrosive aspects of contemporary culture, 
to immerse ourselves in a healthier and more optimistic setting, and to recast our own personal narratives, enabling us to find a deeper purpose and greater meaning. It can reconnect us with what really matters. The following pages will tell you how. I'll conclude with one more plug for Richard Fletcher, who stands near the front of the list of authors I would have loved to speak with if only I had started the podcast sooner. I'm constantly stunned that his outstanding work on Santiago's boom times, St. James' Catapult, The Life and Times of Diego Helmirez of Santiago de Compostela, is out of print, with hard copies difficult to come by. However, there is a silver lining, and it's a big silver lining. The full PDF of the book is publicly available, linked on DaveWitson.com, so you can read it right now for free, and you should. Read Anne's account for a broad overview of the cathedral we see today, and then check out Fletcher for a deeper dive into the turbulent times of Diego Helmirez, Queen Uraca, and the assorted Alfonsos. And when you're done, check out his book on El Cid, The Quest for El Cid, as it offers great insight into some of the places that El Cid touched on the Camino Frances, including Carrion de los Condes, and the broader impact of the Reconquista. I cannot recommend it enough. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Anne Bourne for talking with me about If You Stand Here. You can find Anne at tumbleweedpilgrim.com and thebackpackpress.com. Thanks for indulging me in my reading of The Introduction to Pilgrimage, A Medieval Cure for Modern Ills too. You can find both on the assorted online bookstores. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. More to come next week.